I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. All opinions and discussions on the podcast are purely individual experience, so please consult a doctor or medical professional for more information. Welcome to the Shake It Up Show, a podcast in partnership with Shake It Up Australia Foundation for Parkinson's Research, where we speak to people whose lives have been impacted by Parkinson's disease and hear their stories. My name is Amy Louise Ruffle. I'm an actor, comedian, podcaster, and most importantly, a proud Shake It Up Australia ambassador in support of my dad who lives with Parkinson's. My guest this week is someone I have had the privilege of seeing in action as he was until very recently my dad's neurologist. He's worked for over 40 years as a researcher and a neurologist specializing in movement disorders, generating over 250 research publications and has an H score of 60, which I don't know what that is and we're going to get into it. So please welcome Professor Malcolm Horn to the show. Hi, Mel. Good day, Amy. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm thrilled to have you here. And I guess first question from that intro, what's an H score? Oh, it's just a uh, measure that uh, people use in research to uh, see what the impact of your publications and research are, because if no one's reading them, not much point in having written it. So it's just, that's just really what it means. Okay. And 60 means that people are reading the research? Yes. Yes. It's a good score. Fantastic. So how did you come to be a specialist in Parkinson's or movement disorders? Has this always been an area of interest? Uh, A bit of an accident, really. I was um, interested in movement, uh, the study of movement. And while I was at medical school, I became quite intrigued with it, partly because of one of my teachers. So I took a year off from medicine to do um, an equivalent to an honours year, really, but you something we could do in medicine where you could take it off. And so I did that study and, um, in fact, quite seriously thought about going into research rather than staying in medicine, convinced my, by my supervisor to stay and, and finish my degree, which I did do. But um, the study of movement just inevitably brings you back to the sorts of movements that movement disorders that um, come from what are called the frontal lobes, which, uh, as the name suggests, are the reasons that human have this big bump over our head, over our eyes in the front. And uh, there, that's the part of the brain that's actually disturbed by Parkinson's in Parkinson's disease. And so the sorts of movements that are made by habit that allow us to learn and um, make things automatically are the things I was interested in, and that's the sorts of movements affected in Parkinson's. So is movement disorder an encompassing term for a bunch of different conditions that Parkinson's is one of? That's right, yes. So it includes things like Huntington's disease, Tourette's disease, dystonia, very many conditions that are all characterised by having abnormal movement. Okay. And so then how did you end up specialising in Parkinson's? Well, it's the most common one, and so it's hard not to get involved in in Parkinson's if you're a movement disorder specialist. And um, some people go into other areas, but just Parkinson's was the one I was particularly interested in. I don't know why, just, you know, you drift into these things. Absolutely. And so it's my understanding that throughout your career, you've 
treated individual patients, had those consultations, but also been doing research concurrently. So how did those two things work together? So sometimes with, well, first of all, the reason that it's good is because um, there's several good things that come out of being a clinician who does research is that it actually stimulates ideas and questions that come up because you see the problem there. The second thing is to put it crudely, your patients become your um, research quarry site, to put it in a, a rude sense, in that these are all the people who will come and participate in your studies and uh, it therefore becomes e- easy to recruit them. So that's the reason that it's good. Um, another really important reason is that patients um, or the seeing people with Parkinson's gives you a better way of translating your research into something that's clinically useful. And so because you're understanding what's what's required and you're able to actually articulate that question a bit easily, more easily. The downside of it is that they are really two different ways of thinking and they are always conflicting with each other. So you sort of have to put a bit of a wall up between the two of them so that you, you have time for the patients and you have time for research and you're not always robbing from one to pay the other and uh, you can do them both properly. I'm sure that's a very tricky balance to establish. <laughs> I suspect it's true in many, many specialties other than medicine, but it's just actually you know, doing the two things properly. So of the 250 uh, research publications, what were some of the projects that stand out in your mind that you worked on? So... They're variable. Some of them are sort of, I think, very interesting, but not terribly useful, but um, sort of intellectually interesting. But perhaps some of the ones that are more useful are those that led to us developing the um, PKG, the device for measuring Parkinson's disease. Um, that that sort of came out of the sort of research that came in our lab laboratory. So that is useful. Um, so what is that some for of, someone that doesn't know what the so, measuring is? Yes, so that's a device that's worn on the wrist, like a wrist, well, it is a wristwatch, but that's, it's not really all that much to do. The watch is just there to make it more of a helpful device, but it uh, measures the information and allows us to more accurately, uh, well, in fact, accurately quantify the level of disturbance of movement that occurs in Parkinson's and its relationship to the use of medications. That's useful for two reasons. The immediate one for the person wearing the watch is that it gives you a better way of titrating the medication and making decisions about what to do with the medication, what to deploy and um, which medications to choose. But it's it's also very helpful for research because um, if you have a new medication that's coming out, you can't tell whether it's effective unless you measure and show that it's more effective than something else you've used. And so the better your measurement, the shorter the trial, the less chance there is of missing an effective medication um, because uh, you didn't measure it properly. I remember Um, because my dad has had one of those and I remember it was so visually clear because, you you know, you get the the graph and the times and you could see the impact of the medication when it started to Mm. wear off. So it was even as a um, person participating in it, so useful yep. to have such a great visual of how the medicine was working. But what were you doing before then? If if this is something that you sort of developed, how were you measuring it before? Well, really by um, just ask, trying to ask a pa- the person what they were experiencing and just using as best as we could the tools that were available to us by taking a good history. 
Now, we know from further subsequent studies that we've done that even if amongst specialists in the area, we make mistakes about 30% of the time and get the story wrong and can't really accurately identify it. So that's been helpful because of that reason for those 30% or so who we weren't getting it right. Absolutely. Well, especially if you're relying on someone relaying their memory of the week and their experience, that's always going to have natural bias or memory issues. It is that. But the other thing which I think is really important is that what we're trying to do is to assess the effect of the chemical called dopamine in the brain, which is what's uh, one of the things that goes missing in Parkinson's. It's not the only problem. But one of the aspects that it has is it disturbs movement, and that's something that we can readily assess. But it's the surrogate marker for missing the dopamine. And not everybody experiences it as a loss of dopamine, even though, or a loss of movement, I should say, even though we know that the movement is there, they experience it as fatigue or not being able to think as clearly or getting anxious or other feelings. And aren't really aware of the effect on movement. So here we are sort of saying, but does your, do your movement slow down? Do you find it's trouble walking? No, no, I just can't think clearly. And so as a clinician, you learn to interpret these things, but that just makes it a harder thing because we're we're often assuming that what they're experiencing is what we think they should be experiencing. So it's that just makes it a harder communication to have. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I'm sure like a much longer process and knowing that a lot of people, you know, time is of the essence. So the quicker you can get that data, the quicker you can treat them and hopefully reduce some of the symptoms they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So what are some of the findings that uh, were discovered in your time in this field that's either changed our understanding of Parkinson's or the way it could be treated? So I think there's over the time I've been in there there's been many many big changes I suppose I'll just pick out two really important perhaps three really important ones the first is that I think when when I first started it was sort of not that long after the onset you know the the production of the film Awakenings and the advent of levodopa and people saw Parkinson's as just a disorder of movement we've now realized it's actually a much bigger problem and it affects so many other aspects of people's life other than just the movement. And that's a really big understanding and insight. And I think really also the understanding how the movement comes from disturbances of, of the frontal lobes, which in other words, saying that it, movement is part of cognition and cognition is an important disturbance in Parkinson's. I think the other big change is um, the discover, discovery of the influence of genetics on Parkinson's. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody with Parkinson's has a genetic influence, but some of the genes have led us to understand that a molecule which was really hardly ever heard of before called alpha-synuclein is important in Parkinson's, and it actually led us to understand that the brain signature, when you look at people who've had Parkinson's, the brains of people who've had Parkinson's, there's changes in there due to aggregation of a protein. And no one knew what they were. They were just named after the pathologist who found them about 130 years ago, 110, sorry. And um, they were called Lewy bodies. But now we know that they're due to this molecule called alpha-synuclein, which accumulates in the brain. And that 
really is leading to studies now which are directed at trying to reduce the amount of alpha-synuclein in the brain. Now, whether that actually is the cause or whether it's the consequence of whatever's causing the problem that this alpha-synuclein goes up, goes wrong, time will tell. But it's an important step forward in trying in getting us to understand what's going on inside the cells when the neuron, the nerve cells themselves to actually cause this problem. I think the other thing which probably is important too is that we've also realized that Parkinson's is a family of conditions and that may be important too in finding out that a bit like heart disease, that actually heart disease is not a thing. It's actually the result of a whole lot of risk factors. And it may be that actually trying to prevent Parkinson's mightn't be like finding the cause of COVID where it's one thing and if we get rid of that one thing, it goes away. It perhaps might be more like Parkinson, but like heart disease, whereas we remove the risk factors like too much cholesterol, smoking, high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera, we can actually re really reduce the incidence of Parkinson's. So these are ideas that have been all new since um, I started. So if it is a family of diseases, like you said, do you know what some of those other contributing things for Parkinson's are, or we're still looking for that? So I think there's two things in what you're saying. Some of the other members of the family, we do know what they are. <laughs> so um, things like uh, multi-systems atrophy, which is a condition that starts off looking a lot like Parkinson's, but isn't Parkinson's, and it has a different course. Um we used to lump things like progressive nuclear palsy in with Parkinson's. We now know it's a different thing. So there's various types, and we suspect that in all of the things we still call Parkinson's, there may be variants in there that are actually you know, close cousins but not quite the same thing. Now, perhaps the other thing you talked about, what are the risk factors? Well, we don't know exactly yet because we're not close enough to seeing people in the very, very early stages, perhaps even before they had symptoms, so that if we were able to get right at the very early stages, we would see. And that, you know, living a long time is a cause, mm -hmm. is a risk factor. So the longer you live, the higher your chance of having it. Possibly having the genetics, it may be a risk factor, and well, certainly is in some people, particularly in early onset Parkinson's or young onset. But probably things that are a little bit related to cardiovascular disease like fitness, obesity, those sorts of things may 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 be um, risk factors as well. Well, they're sort of just a risk factor for your general health. So it's a, a good reminder, as always, to be trying to look after our general health and well-being. <laughs> yes, well, they are for that, but it may also be a specific reason. So, we, you know, for example, in Alzheimer's, we know that cardiovascular risks are risk factors for that as well because they actually alter the way the blood vessels around the brain allow molecules to move in and out and that may seems to be important in actually the generation or some aspects of the generation of the condition and it may be that the same things are happening in Parkinson's. Oh wow because I know that the incident of Alzheimer's is increasing and obviously like heart disease cardiovascular is one of the yeah. major health issues of today too so it's very fascinating that there's a link there well if i might also correct you there it is oh, increasing no. <laughs> but it's actually peaked it, it is actually peaked and the incidence of dementia per capita in many countries 
is actually t turning around and it's turning around with the reduction of cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease is not quite as bad as it used to be. And so also there's some sort of turning the corner in slowing down an improvement in the rate of dementia. So these are possibly co-related factors that, you know, reducing the risk factors for cardiovascular disease has also reduced the rate that dementia is occurring. Well, I'm glad you're here to fact check me because that's also a very positive <laughs> fact check to hear that it's um, yeah. decreasing. So yeah. <laughs> I'll leave all of the, the medical facts to you from here on out. <laughs> Another question I have is, what are you hoping to see in the future of Parkinson's research? What's the next step you see? So I think it carries on from just what we've been talking about is that I think what um, we would all like to do is immediately jump to the point where we had two things. One is a way of reducing the risk of someone getting Parkinson's. And if they do get Parkinson's, reducing at the best, curing it, but probably more likely slowing down its progression. And so I think they're the two things we would all like to see. Now, how that might occur, well, the more you understand about how the disease is caused, what makes it happen, then the better chance you have of actually slowing down that. And whether it's going to be some aspects of lifestyle, some aspects of chemistry, and uh, therefore taking drugs. And again, I'm going to use heart disease as an example. We've been good at changing lifestyle. Smoking is reduced. Blood pressure is being better treated. People are, uh, we're probably doing some good in terms of obesity, but also we've realised that it's it's probably a family reason that most of us actually who have high lipids, high cholesterol, etc. that's probably, as a large part, it's related to what we've inherited, not just what we eat, although eating contributes, so it worsens that inheritance. Now that can be treated. So, you know, we've got a drug to treat this problem, which is actually a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We might I suspect we will end up in a very similar way with Parkinson's where there are risk factors that we can modify both with lifestyle and treatments, but also there may be something that is specifically we can do to slow down the disease once it's there. Mm -hmm. I remember in a consultation that I sat in with my dad, we're talking about, and I'll get you to fill in the, the proper names for these these interventions, but it was for the medication to be going straight into his um, stomach so it would be constantly uh, fed in rather than the tablets and reducing, I guess, those up and down times. And you spoke about there was a trial going on for a less invasive treatment where uh, for, for the one he was talking about, it's quite a big pack that he would have to have sort of attached to his body and you were in trial phases for one that was smaller and sort of stuck to the skin like a patch. So a bit less, I guess, overwhelming for someone with Parkinson's to have to have in their life a little patch rather than this big pack. How is mm -hmm. that trial going? So that's been finished. It's with the FDA. I think they have actually, FDA has given their um, report back to the pharmaceutical company. There were some complications, mainly around infections around the skin and the nature of the pump, and so the company's modifying that. And so that looks like it's going to be progressing on as a way of actually doing that, uh, treat, you know, using that treatment instead of using the one that goes into the 
the pump that goes into the stomach. I think the other thing that's probably useful is that to actually change the drug so that it can be given to the stomach means that with a smaller pump also means that it may well be possible to deliver it into the stomach with a smaller pump as well. So that also may improve things a bit. But so there's two good bits of news there. Yeah, it sounds great. Because I know for dad, I think getting any sort of um, invasive procedure is overwhelming and an adjustment. But I know for him, he would certainly feel better about it if it was a, a smaller thing. And then maybe it's opening up people to embrace these treatments that would really improve their quality of life a little earlier rather yeah. than that apprehension around it and therefore maybe having to suffer more than they need to. That's right. I think that's an earlier uptake of these things without the sort of psychological obstacles to the intrusions of the sorts of uh, therapies like deep brain stimulation and the hole in the stomach and the abdominal wall would be uh, much better. Well, we look forward to that possibility in the future. I just have one last question for you and then I will let you go because my understanding is, despite you being here, that you have entered retired life. So A, is that true? And B, how is it going? Um, It's partially true. I have retired from seeing patients, but I'm still doing research. (laughs) And uh, But um, yes, I'm enjoying it. A bit more time for hiking and things like that. Fantastic. Have you had a, a, a hike recently that you enjoyed, a, a trail you can maybe recommend to some listeners? Yes, I, um, the Grampians has got some new campsites, so I did the overnight walks along there for um, about three days. They're very good, the new, the new campsites. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today about all of your experience in this field. I lied. One more question. If someone does have Parkinson's and they they wanted to participate in research, where would they go uh, to to do that? So there's quite a few ways you can do that, but it depends a bit on where you live. There are, um, in all of the um, major capital cities in Australia, there are research centres in quite a few of the other cities, such as um, Newcastle and um, certainly has quite an active research centre so that Canberra, etc. So there's plenty of places that in the major hospitals where by asking the neurologist there, they would know what's going on and being able to slot you into the centres that are doing it. As well, there are registries which um, Shake It Up, for example, runs um, where you can enrol so that people know can go to that and know find your name there and contact you to see whether you'd be interested in participating in their research. Just as well, there are also particular research institutes as well that are doing um, research that are, again, in most of the major centres in Australia. Lots of options for people to get involved and, Mm -hmm. like you said, get closer to different ways to treat things and hopefully one day that cure. Yep, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so enlightening. Sorry, I butchered a bunch of questions, but I'm doing my best. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, you did well. I'm playing the listener because I think there's a lot of people listening that would be more on my side of the understanding rather than yours. So we're very grateful that you've shared with us today and made it palatable. No, happy to do that, Annie. All right. Thank you again. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Shake It Up Australia funds groundbreaking Australian research that aims to slow, stop 
and cure Parkinson's disease. And they need your help. To support Shake It Up's vision of a world without Parkinson's, head to shakeitup.org.au forward slash podcast. Together, we can find a cure.